Romans chapter 12 today, verses 14 through 21. Um, I haven't mentioned this for a while, but every week there are go deep sheets, we call them. Out on the table, there's cafe table right next to the door that you enter by, and you'll find a go deep sheet with questions on it that help you think further about the passage and how to apply it to life. So I'd encourage you to pick one of those up, and you can always join us at Bigby Coffee at 645 on Wednesday nights when we do that together and we talk through these questions and think about them and, and share our lives with each other. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. I'm going to invite you, we're going to read it today out of the New International Version, 1984. Uh, I'm going to invite you to read it with me. It's a fairly long passage, and we'll try to get in sync here and sort of read it together. But uh, Romans 12, verse 14, reading together, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul ends this chapter by picturing a conflict between good and evil. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word translated overcome is taken from the battlefield, and it means to vanquish or to triumph. Do not be vanquished by evil, but vanquish evil with good. The verb here is cognate to the Greek noun uh, nike, or victor in English which is also the name of the shoe company that sponsors Michael Jordan, Nike. Now, speaking of Michael Jordan, and how do you like this for a segue? Speaking of Michael Jordan, I played basketball this week. Yeah, <laughs> with my sons and some of the guys from youth group. Now, I was cognizant of the fact that I am triple the age plus change of some of these guys, and that I have heart disease, and that I've hardly played in the last four or five years. So whenever there was a tussle for a loose ball, I made sure to position myself somewhere on the other side of the court. <laughs> While I rooted for our side, usually Ethan Nottingham, to win. But I didn't join the fray. Uh, you know, I have broken, my fingers are a mess, and jammed and hyperextended enough fingers playing basketball over the years that I'm wary now. So my attitude these days is, it's just a game. It's just a game. You know that's what people tell themselves when they're about to lose, right? It's just a game. I've heard coaches say that after the Super Bowl. It's just a game. And they're right, it is. But what Paul's talking about at the end of this chapter is not just a game. This is not a game. It's not a game at all. It's glory to God, life or death, death. 
save the world serious. We will either vanquish or be vanquished. We'll fight and win or we'll quail and lose. Now, before Christmas, we saw how this passage is structured. I just want to remind you how the renewed mind Paul wrote about in verse 2 is the prerequisite for obeying the instructions found in the rest of the chapter. The life that's described in these verses is thoroughly countercultural. This is not what normal people do, can do, or even want to do. This kind of life is reserved for people who are radically committed to God, as Paul described it in verse 1 and then are experiencing the mind shift he refers to in verse 2. When we began this passage, we saw how the instructions here are meant to flesh out what the genuine love of verse 9 looks like in real life. First with fellow Christians, that was verses 10 through 13. Then with people generally, verses 14 through 16. And finally with people who oppose us, verses 17 through 20. Now, prior to Christmas, we thought about how love functions in the Christian community. That's verses 10 through 13. Now we move on to other relationships. There is, if you're reading this in Greek, there is an obvious change in syntax in verse 14 that marks this transition to outside the the body of Christ, outside the church fellowship. What we need to know here at the beginning is that this glory to God, life or death, vanquish or be vanquished battle Paul is talking about is waged in relationships. We assume it's waged out on the mission field or maybe in the halls of Congress. And of course it is waged there, but no more so than in the supermarket or in the bedroom. We think it's waged in the church board meeting or in the auditorium on Sunday mornings. But this is where the behind the lines stuff happens. This is where we're armed and trained and inspired. The battleground is our relationships, your relationships. It's there that justice is done and evil conquered, or there that evil conquers and justice goes undone. Much harm has come to the cause of Christ through Christians who fight for justice in the public square but allow themselves to be thoroughly defeated by evil in their own relationships. We have assumed that our relationships with neighbor, boss, coworker, and especially spouse, are nobody else's business. That is not true. It is in relationships that we vanquish evil with good. If it doesn't happen there, it doesn't happen at all. You and I can fight for the unborn. We can champion the cause of the oppressed. We can take a stand for the poor, and we should. But if we're defeated by evil in our relationships, we're defeated. That's where it happens. And isn't that what the apostle was talking about when he said, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I'm nothing. I'm defeated. One other thing before we look at verse 14. 
I already know that you, you will dismiss all of this as irrelevant or unrealistic. You will think unimportant things, crucial, and crucial things, optional, will think that God's will is all about what you do, where you work, where you live, and not about whom you relate to unless you're being renewed in your mind. The theme of mind renewal runs throughout this chapter, beginning in verse 2, and is predicated on the thoughtful sacrifice. By thoughtful, I mean not, not because you hear a sermon, because you've, but because you've thought through this and decided this is the thing to do, the thoughtful sacrifice of our lives to God's service that Paul wrote about in, chapter, in verse 1. All right, let's look at verse 14. And if there was ever a striking example of how the renewed mind is different from the unrenewed mind, it's right here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, St. Paul here is, of course, quoting Jesus, which he does not do very often. But he is taking two sayings of Jesus from the Gospels and melding them here. Bless those who curse you. Uh, and, and pray for those who despitefully use you. Scholars tell us that prior to Jesus, there is no hint of this teaching in Judaism or in any pre-Christian religion. The idea of blessing a persecutor is so foreign. Speaking a good word intended to promote a person's well-being who is promoting your ruin is unheard of. No, you cursed those who curse you. You curse those who are against you. You speak words to hasten their ruin. Now, let me ask you just frankly, is it even possible to do this? To bless our persecutors and really mean it? Of course it is. If you're being renewed in your minds. Let me tell you a story about Julio Diaz. Julio Diaz is a 30-something social worker in the Bronx. He's closer to 40 now. He was headed home from work. He stepped onto the subway platform, and this teenager ran up to him, pulled a knife, and demanded his wallet. He looks at the kid, decides it's not worth fighting with him, and he gives it to the kid, who turns and starts to run away, but he stops when Julio calls out, hey, wait a minute, you forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat, too, so you can keep warm. And the kid just stood there looking at him. So Julio went on. He said, look, I guess you must really need the money, right? I mean, all I wanted to do was go get dinner. And, you know, if you really want to join me, you're more than welcome. And for some reason, this kid said yes. They went to Julio's favorite diner. He stops at this place every night on his way home from work. And the manager and several waitresses, they stop at the booth and they say hi and they talk for a while. The dishwashers stick their heads out of the kitchen and they wave at Julio. The kid asks him, do you own this place or something? And Julio just smiles and says, haven't you been taught you should be nice to everybody? And the kid said, yeah, but I didn't think people actually behave that way. By the way, you can hear this story. You can hear Julio telling this story on StoryCorps. So if you go on NPR's site and look at StoryCorps, you can find this story. 
The social worker and the mugger sit there in this booth for a long time talking. When the bill finally comes, Julio told the kid that he needed his wallet to pay, which he handed over to him without thinking twice about it. So Julio paid for the meal, and then he said to the kid, look, here's 20 bucks, and would you give me your knife? And the kid hands him his knife. Julio blessed his persecutor. We can bless ours. But look, it doesn't always turn out the way it did for Julio Diaz. Sometimes our persecutors will hurt us even more. They, they may mock us as Jesus' persecutors mocked him after he blessed them. We don't bless persecutors as a way of manipulating their behavior. We bless them because we know God, or at least we're getting to know him. Our lives belong to him. We know he's responsible for us, and we trust him to use our obedience to conquer evil. We trust him to make things come out right, even when they look like they can't. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn, or better, cry with those who cry. Commentators often limit the scope of this command to the Christian community. They say Paul's gone back to Christians now, but I don't think so. I think Paul is gradually widening the compass to take in non-Christians in verses 14 through 16 and even enemies in verses 17 through 20. We start with fellow believers, as Paul taught us to do in Galatians, but the Christian way is to do good to all people. The capacity for rejoicing with those who rejoice and crying with those who cry also belongs to those who are being renewed in their minds. The unrenewed mind envies those who rejoice, and it avoids those who weep, or worse, tells them, I told you so. But the person who's being renewed in his mind, who's coming to know God for who he is, can actually be glad when others succeed, and genuinely sad when they hurt. Now, I want you to imagine what it would be like if we were better at this inside the church. Not just Lockwood, but in the church generally. But in Lockwood, too. Think about Lockwood, since we know us best. If we genuinely rejoiced with our fellow LCC members who experienced success, I mean, we really grabbed them and hugged them and danced up and down. This is great for you. And if we really cried, not faking it, but cried with the ones who hurt, people would be breaking down our doors to get in. Now, in a church our size, I know we're kind of small this morning, but in a church our size, I know it's impossible to know everyone who's experiencing success or going through heartbreak. But if just 10 of us knew, if 10 of us jumped up and down when one of us was successful or cried when, when things were going bad, our entire church would glow with the love of God. But why stop at the church? I don't think Paul does. Who is in your circle of influence? Neighbors? Extended family? Co-workers? Other students? If we rejoiced with them when they got a raise or won an award or got a new car, if we cried with them when a family member died, when they lost their jobs, when they got unwelcome news from the doctor, God would do incredible things through us in our community. The entire community would be transformed. Verse 16 now. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. That first phrase that the NIV and ESV translate as live in harmony with one another is really closer to the NASB's be of the same mind toward one another. Paul's still working with the theme of the renewed mind. I think the idea following verse 15 is to think your way into another person's situation. Now that takes time. Time that most of us feel we can't afford. It, it's not productive. And since we're Americans, we need to be productive. But what God could do among us if we would take that time, if we would obey him in this, if we would think our way into the, what other situations, others' situations are like. The next phrase, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, is notoriously difficult to translate. If you look at it in a bunch of different translations, you'll see they take it different ways. Do not be proud. You don't see this in English, but you do in Greek. Yet again, uses a word for the mind, for thinking. It's more like no uppity thinking. As long as we think ourselves to be superior to the people around us, we will never be able to rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep. The rest of the sentence, but be willing to associate with people of low position, is more literally, but get carried away with the lowly. Uh, this is the word that's used when Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy of some in, in Galatia. The lowly here probably refers to people below Paul's readers on the social ladder that sharply defined Roman society. In Roman society, you were somewhere on this ladder and you knew exactly where you were. And you knew who was above you and you knew who was below you. And you did not associate with people below you by choice. And you didn't associate with people above you because they wouldn't let you. Paul says, don't live that way. No, associate with people, be friends with people who are below you on this ladder. Now, if you lived in Rome in the first century and you wanted to be somebody, the very last thing you would do is take this advice. Get carried away with the lowly. Paul, do you want people to think I'm a loser? But the genuine love Paul's describing refuses to be bound by social status. Love does not say, yeah, they're okay, but they should hang out with their own kind. Because love owns every kind of person. See, people who are not being renewed in their minds, they don't understand this. They are constantly drawing lines between themselves and other people. Oh, they're Democrats. Oh, they're Republicans. They're Muslims. They're black. They're white. They're Latino. They're the wrong sort of people. They're from the other side of the tracks. Listen, Earth is the other side of the tracks. It's the slum outside Heaven's Gate. And we're the wrong sort of people. Fortunately, that's not how God thinks about us. And it's not how the renewed mind thinks about others. One of the best examples of the renewed mind that I know in our time is Dallas Willard's. 
Dallas Willard died in 2012, I think. Um, but his teaching on the subject of the renewed mind ought to be required reading. But it wasn't just his teaching, it was his example. He was a noted philosopher, an expert on Edmund Husserl and phenomenology, world-renowned author and speaker, but because he was himself undergoing the mind renewal that he wrote about, he could make himself available to all kinds of people, and not just fellow academics. I once emailed him a question. He emailed me back. He didn't know me from Adam. He must get thousands of those things. When, when an undergraduate student in his class sharply and stupidly contradicted him and the class ended, Dallas just let it go. Let him have the last word. Somebody said, why didn't you just make him look like a fool? He said, I'm practicing the discipline of giving other people the last word. He met with ordinary people in his home, construction workers, for example, come to his house, and he would help them know God. And he did that without the least feeling of superiority because he didn't feel superior. See, that's the renewed mind. It doesn't draw lines between me and other people. The last phrase in this verse <clears throat> uses yet another thinking word. It's the ninth in this chapter. The NIV 84 translates, do not be conceited. The NASB says, do not become wise in your own estimation. To reflect Paul's use as a thinking terminology, we might say, don't be overconfident in your own thinking. Whenever we think we have all the answers, we are certainly working from the wrong set of questions. Verse 17 now, do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Have you heard of Ernest Gordon? Ernest Gordon was quite well known in previous generations. There was a movie made about him not that many years ago. Uh, he was the dean of chapel at Princeton. But before that, Ernest Gordon was an agnostic. He left Scotland to fight the Japanese in World War II. His ship was captured, and he was sent to a prisoner of war camp in Singapore, where he was cruelly, unbelievably cruelly mistreated. Dying, he was sent off to the death ward, where, from which almost no one ever returned. But miraculously, he recovered, largely due to the around-the-clock care he received from two Christian men. So he's an agnostic living in what seems like hell. And there he meets these two Christian men. Uh, one is a Presbyterian named Dusty, and the other is a Catholic that everybody calls Dinty. What amazed Gordon about Dusty was the way that he trusted God in spite of everything that was happening and how he responded to the terrible treatment that he himself received with composure and grace just two weeks before the war ended, Dusty was crucified by a Japanese guard who was furious because he couldn't get under his skin. And Dinty was killed that same week when he was being transported upon an unmarked prisoner of war transport ship, which of course was against Geneva Conventions. But he was killed when the Allies bombed that ship. Because of those two men, Ernest Gordon 
and a great many other men in that POW camp became Christians. You've heard of the, the movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai? That's the prisoner camp of which Ernest Gordon was a prisoner. And Gordon went on to influence generations of men and women for Jesus. Now here's the question we should be asking. Where was the battle waged between good and evil in Singapore? Was it in the skies above? Was it out on the seas? Not primarily. The battle was waged where it's always waged in relationships. And who overcame evil with good? Two faithful men who loved Jesus and obeyed his commands. You say, but they were both killed. Yes, they were. But that doesn't mean they didn't win. They vanquished evil with good, which is the only thing in the universe that can stop evil. And they could do this because they knew what God is like. They knew they could trust him to deal with the justice of their situation. And he will do that. And think, what will it be like to meet those men in heaven? And thousands and ten thousands of people who are like them. It'll be glory for God, glory for them, and joy unspeakable that's full of glory for us. Now that brings us to verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends. This could be translated, do not get justice for yourselves. The word revenge is built around the word justice. Do not get justice for yourselves. Justice is God's job. And he's good at it. And he'll do it right. And God's favorite way of getting justice is pretty sly is to turn the terrible sinner into a saint, the rebel into a child, the agnostic into a believer, just like he did with you and me. And then he uses that saint to overcome evil with good. And the renewed mind, it loves it when that happens. All right, I've used two illustrations that probably seem a long way off to us. Julio Diaz in Brooklyn tough place, subways. We're not used to subways in cold water, you know, <clears throat> muggers. And Ernest Gordon and his friends Dusty and Dinty 70 years ago in far off Singapore. But what do you say? We become the illustrations of this kind of life for other people. We can bless those who persecute us. We can rejoice with those who rejoice and cry with those who cry. We can get carried away with people instead of carried away by the latest tech if our minds are being renewed. Our relationships, both inside the church and outside the church, will offer us opportunities. Some of those relationships will afford us the opportunity to rejoice with those who rejoice. Some of us probably have that opportunity this week. And others to cry with those who cry. And still others may involve persecutors, people who treat us badly, who curse us, who have treated us unjustly. And God will enable us to respond with grace and composure and overcome evil with good. You know, this I think is a chief characteristic of the mind that's being renewed. 
It comes in time, and it takes time, but it comes in time to realize that only good will ever vanquish evil. We spend too much time deflecting evil instead of vanquishing it. Evil can deflect evil, but it also increases it. Good overcomes it. But does any of us have the courage and strength to face evil with good? Those who are being renewed in their thinking do. Who are coming to know God. Those who, verse 1, have presented their bodies as living and, if need be, dying. Sacrifices. Holy and acceptable. Which is your reasonable service of worship. All right, let's pray. Just give you a minute to think about this and let the Lord speak to you. If he wants to speak to you maybe about some relationship in your life right now where he wants to overcome evil with good. Lord, I do pray all of us have relationships where love can be genuine, but Lord, so often we don't even notice. I ask you to change that in my life and in our lives. I ask you to make our church a place where people love each other from the heart. And, Lord, make us instruments of good that conquer evil in our world. For Jesus' sake.